0: It is, we just we sang just together that we will build our lives upon His love. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start this series uh, called The Gospel-Shaped Life, um, and we're going to start with what is the gospel. Um, with this whole series, Lord willing, this, this, this summer, the next three months, two and a half months, um, we're going to do a series on, on what the gospel-shaped life looks like. And, and the reason we're doing this, the elders in one of our meetings, or a couple of our meetings, we talked about what we thought would be encouraging, helpful for, for our people to, to hear. What, what do we need? And a few topics that came up were were marriage or parenting, uh, Christians' relationship with the government, evangelism. These are all some of the ideas that, that were, were discussed. And so what we've decided to do is to put most of these topics into one all-encompassing series, and that series is the gospel-shaped life. And so we're going to look at how the gospel shapes not just our lives big picture, like our eternal life, that we were were once dead but now alive, but but how it shapes every aspect of our lives here and now. I mean, as Christians, I I don't think I I need to, to belabor this point, but the reality is that as Christians, we're all in various stages of life if you just look around, we are all different. Some, some of you are boys and girls still in school. Some are young parents with young kids. Some are in the middle of your career journey. Some are fresh into retirement. Some of you have been retired for longer than you worked. Some of you have been retired for longer than I've been alive. So, so we're on different stages in life. We all have different relationships. I mean, most of you are married. Some are not. Some of your spouses have, have passed away some maybe are newly married some have been married longer than most of us have been alive some have young kids toddlers crawling and running all over the house and maybe the neighborhood some have adult kids some have grandkids or great grandkids and so your relationship with with all these different people it's unique to each person some have new neighbors that just moved in across the street some of you have had the same neighbors for decades Some of you have have relationships specific to to what what events or hobbies you or your children are in, their swim team or soccer team or baseball, gymnastics. Some have relationships around playing bridge together on Friday nights. Some have relationships related to other hobbies or interests or travel. We, as Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, as believers who are part of this church, though we are similar in a lot of ways, in all the ways that I've just listed, we are very diverse, which means... The problem is, I can't, we can't preach a one-size-fits-all sermon series, because you're all different. There's not one way I can say, hey, here's the answer for you in your life to live. You need to just do this, because it's all different. You're in different situations, and, and it would call for different actions. So there's not one way for, for every parent to deal with every child that they have. And so the hope, what we hope to show you, what we hope to encourage you in over the summer, is that there is one gospel that shapes every aspect of your life. No matter what stage you're in, no matter what your relationships are, the gospel shapes how you live where you are right now. From your biggest issues to your most mundane moments, the gospel shapes the life of the Christian. Christians are called to live gospel-shaped lives. And so we want to look, we want to spend the summer looking over some of the ways that the gospel does that. So that's the aim of our series, and we're going to be looking at all kinds of different topics in the coming weeks. But today, before we start, before we take up any specific topic like a a family or marriage or a relationship with with the government or as citizens or or relationship among Christians, we, we have to start by ensuring that we're all at the same starting point. We can talk about how the gospel shapes this area and that area in our lives, but if we aren't on the same page and understand what the gospel is, then we've lost before we've even started. So we've got to make sure we're starting at the same point. So we're asking the question today, what is the gospel? It's a crucial question. In fact, I I just think about it. What is the gospel? Don't answer out loud. Just just think. I'm asking you, what is the gospel? What's the good news? What's the message of Christianity? I think we'd all agree that the gospel or the good news is foundational to Christianity. After all, the gospel of Jesus Christ stands at the very center of, of the Christian faith, and we, we Christians claim to be about the gospel above all else. That, that's, a, that's a common slang or, or slogan these days. It's, it's what we intend to found our lives upon. It's, it's what we want to build our churches around. It's what we want to tell others about. It's what we pray that others will hear and believe. It's about the gospel. The gospel is foundational to the Christian faith, to our Christian lives. And so we all agree it's it's foundational or important, but if we were to to one at a time ask every single person here, what is the gospel, I'm certain that we would have a a variety of different answers. I'm certain that that you would all answer differently. There'd certainly be some overlap but but there would be variety in answers. And if we drove down the street to another Baptist church in Hampton, there would be more different answers. If we went to another evangelical church that, that claims to believe the gospel, there would be yet more answers. And so I just want us to, to just start at the same place. We can't assume the gospel. I think that's what we do sometimes. We can't assume the gospel. We, we must unite around one gospel. This must be a plain and clear gospel. We must come together week after week, year after year, generation after generation, reaffirming the gospel. In fact, J.C. Ryle in the, in the mid-19th century said this, The longer I live, the more I'm convinced that the world needs no new gospel, as some profess to think. He writes, I am thoroughly persuaded that the world needs nothing but a bold, full, unflinching teaching of the old paths. In fact, he has a whole book called Old Paths. And his point, and what I would affirm wholeheartedly, we need, a, we need the good old gospel. Some of, you sung, some of you grew up singing it. We need the message that you heard in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, the, the good old gospel. That's what we need. We need the message that that maybe you grew up here and in your home. Maybe your grandparents told you in their living room. We need the gospel that that has come to us, that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And we need it now, here and now, because if we're not intentional and persistent and clear and committed to holding fast to the clear, the one true gospel, that gospel will be lost. We will lose it. I've often heard it said the gospel is always only a few generations away from being lost. All it takes is one generation to assume that everybody's on the same page and not pass down a clear gospel to the next generation, and that generation has no hope unless God restores that gospel. If we assume it, we're we're a few generations away from losing it. And so we have to be clear. We have to be monotonous and repetitive. And so week after week, we're going to sing songs, and we're going to pray prayers, and we're going to preach sermons that re- repeat, repeat, repeat the one true gospel. That's what we need. Because if we assume it, if we don't make it clear, if we don't proclaim it, if we don't pray it, if we don't sing it, if we just assume that we all agree without reaffirming it over and over again, we will be confusing to the next generation, which will lead to a distorted gospel being passed down. So think about your kids and your grandkids. Do you want them to know the true Christ of the gospel? Or do you want them to believe in some unclear, vague, generic Jesus and anti-gospel? If you want your grandkids to hold fast to the gospel, you hold fast to the gospel here and now. Then generation after generation will hold fast to Christ. I mean, a great example is in our, our very own nation. If you drive around, you see the present city of things. When we have churches dying and closing on a weekly basis... And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of churches that have shut down that are not meeting today that met last week and, and decades before that. Churches are closing weekly. And we, we see where once church buildings, beautiful church buildings, are now being repurposed. Community centers or restaurants or just overgrown with weeds because no one goes anymore. Right? In every case, if that church was once a church, the the result, how they got to where they are, first and foremost, is they've lost the gospel. A church that holds fast to the gospel doesn't die. If you're holding fast to something other than the gospel, you're going to die. We also see in the aftermath of our our country, our nation's history, think about the mid-18th century, the the Great Awakening, this this revival, this unlike anything that the country had ever experienced and has yet to experience since. It it wasn't this manipulated, for show, man-made event. This was a supernatural revival that spread. And it was through ordinary means, just, just... Preachers preaching the gospel and people being miraculously converted and saved. And it was spread like wildfire. It was a supernatural working of God to transform towns and regions and in turn shaped our entire nation. And as great as that was, only a few decades later, the gospel was lost. A few generations later. And the same churches that were built and planted in the height of the Great Awakening were splintering and forsaking the gospel. In fact, I mean, I, I, I enjoy early American history. And one of the saddest things that I do is, is when I, maybe we're traveling to a place where we're traveling through. And, and if I look at the, the historic cities that were early, mostly Northeast, some Southern, but if you look at the cities and do a little Google search for the First Baptist Church of whatever historic city, this place where, where our founders, where the early Baptists were, were preaching the gospel, were, were ministering in those cities. If that church still exists, most of the time they don't. But if they have a historic Baptist church, specifically, you look on the website and say, "What do you believe?" It is not a Christian church. It's not because they've drifted so far from the gospel. They've lost the gospel, and so it's it's we've we've fallen a long way and. We can ensure that we will fall fast if we lose the gospel. So, so I, I've seen it over and over, time and time again. You have probably seen it. And so what I, I want to do, what, what we want to do as elders is to stake our lives and ministry upon the gospel and the gospel alone. Nothing else. If you, if you want to unite around something other than the gospel, you need to get rid of me. And I speak for Will also. We, we won't cease preaching the gospel. Because when we do, we're on a path to death. We've received the gospel. It's been passed down to us from, from Jesus to the apostles, the, the church fathers, the Protestant reformers, our Baptist forefathers. The gospel that we've received, we're now stewards of it. It's, it's, it's come before us, and it's going to be after us. And so we're stewards of it for this time. And we must be sure and careful not to lose this gospel that we are to steward. And so this morning, all we're going to do is make sure we're on the same page. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look look at the, the gospel and answer the question, what is the gospel? Let me pray. Father, we want to live our lives upon your love that's been shown to us in the gospel. And so as even as, as John's gospel, you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so, so we want to live our lives based on the gospel you have first loved, and so we want to live our lives differently. We want to be loving and humble and peaceful and gentle. We want to, we want to love others that you've put around us, so help us to do that. Help us to, to rejoice in the gospel that has saved us, the gospel of our salvation that we have received from you, that you've done. That's In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here's the outline. There's, there's one point. What is the gospel? The answer is a message. There it is. That's it. We're going to spend the rest of this time on point one, all right? So you don't even have to take notes. The gospel is a message. The first thing, the only thing that we're going to say this morning about the gospel is that it is a message. It's, it's news. It's something to be told, conveyed, proclaimed, as we'll see. But before we even get to the, the idea of proclaiming, we have to establish it is a message. It contains information. There's content to what the gospel is. There are things that, that the gospel is and things the gospel isn't. It is a message, And so we start by recognizing that the gospel of Christianity, the good news of Jesus Christ, is something that we've received. It is from God. It's not man made. We don't say, hey, here, let's come up with a plan to change the world. No, God says, this is the plan. I'm going to change the world for my own sake, for my own glory. It is from God. Paul would refer to the gospel as the gospel of God, it is the gospel that originates. With God, in God's mind, that the triune God uh, designs and and agrees to an eternal plan to save people. And He's going to do it through the gospel, through this message. It's good news, it's from God, and it's about God. It's a message specifically about what God has done, it's divinely instituted. It's come from God to us. We recognize it's not just through one man or one prophet, God has given it to us. From God Himself through the Holy Scriptures. That the Bible is what God has given to us. And in the Bible, the message, the big picture message of the Bible is the good news or contains the good news. There's explicit statements like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. I passed down what I heard. What what you've heard from me, what I passed down, what I received that God that Christ died according to what the Scriptures, was buried and raised three days later according to the Scriptures. That's an explicit gospel statement. But the entire storyline of the Bible tells of the gospel, explains the gospel. I mean, that's that's one of the amazing things about the nature of Scripture, the nature of the Bible. The the style and the handwriting may vary, but the mind that runs through their work is always one and the same. They all tell the same story from Genesis to Revelation. They all give. One account of of humanity, one account of God, one account of the way to be saved. It's not as though, here's salvation through the Old Testament, here's salvation through the New Testament. There's, There's one way, there's one account of the human heart. And so when I say the gospel is from God and has come to us through the Holy Scriptures, I mean that in the Bible we find God's clear, sufficient, authoritative, necessary, and inspired word that communicates to us, conveys to us what we must do to be saved, the message, the main idea of God's revelation to us found in the in the Bible is what we're calling the gospel. And so I just want to walk through what is the gospel. It's contained in the Bible, but but what is the Bible's specific message? What is the gospel? And I just want to I just want to walk us through this with four categories. And there's other ways to, to have the gospel explained or to divide it or, or communicate it, but but every every clear Understanding and communication of the gospel is going to contain these these points or these aspects or these these topics. The gospel begins with God. The message is from God and about God, specifically who he is. And so you think about the the Bible begins, the very first verse of the Bible. There's no question as to the identity of God. What, What does Genesis 1, 1 say? In the beginning, God what? Created. God is the creator, the, the sovereign creator. He's distinct from anything else. Everything else, God is distinct. The, there is a creator. So, as we look around, there is someone who is outside of creation who created. There's God and there's everything else. God spoke and the world was created. The heavens are truly a display of his glory. So are the plants and the animals, the stars, the moon, the clouds, the flowers everything testifies to the creator of the world and so god as the creator he purposefully creates when you create something there's something in your mind I, I want this i'm going to create this similarly god creates with a purpose and this is specifically true regarding all creation but specifically true with humanity god created you sitting here you should teach your kids who made you god made me that's true it's always going to be true God made you, God made me, and he did so with a purpose. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He formed you before anyone else had seen you. God sovereignly created men and women, boys and girls, and he created them purposefully to know him. You were created. If, if nothing else in the world you ever recognize or, or, or come to know, know that you were created to know God. That's why you were created. That is your purpose in life. Your chief end, your ultimate goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why God made you. That's your God-given purpose, my God-given purpose. As created beings, we don't decide what we are created for. That's folly. We don't decide why we exist, who we are, what we are. That is not... Our decision. God tells us why we were made and for what purpose. That is the, the privilege and the right of the Creator. The Creator's in charge, the Creator's sovereign, the Creator decrees purpose. And the Bible tells us we we're, were created to, to know God, to be in relationship with Him. And so, as we start with God as the Creator, we, this establishes who we are and how we got here. This answers a lot of life's big questions. A lot of them that people are dying to know. People want to know, who are we? What's our purpose? Why am I here? Well, well, God made every person on the planet. That's how everyone has gotten here. God made us. And since God is the one who created us, he's the one who not only tells us why we're created, but he has the right to tell us how we are to live. He has the right, he has owner's rights over us. Which leads to another thing to say about God. Not only is he the sovereign creator He's also, according to his character, his nature, he is holy and just. That that must be, for him to be God, he must be holy and just, perfect. And so God is the creator and owner of all things. He also sits over all things in judgment as the holy judge of the earth, as as the one with the rights to declare what is right and what is wrong. He must judge according to what is true. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving wickedness. Yes, but also he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34. God is holy and just, which is important to recognize about the nature and character of God because we start with God, but that's not where the gospel ends. It starts with God. But then we move secondly to, to man, to man. When I say man, I'm referring to mankind, to humanity, to humanity. And the Bible tells us, among other things, two main things that the Bible tells us about, about what is true of all mankind, two things that are true for every man and woman, boy and girl on this planet, two things that are told, first, that every human being has been created by God for a purpose in God's image. So that's the first thing about humanity. We're created in God's image. We're all created in God's image. We're image we have We have value. Intrinsic value by by being, by existing in God's image. We have value. Every single person. From the youngest in the womb to the oldest. We all have value because we all are in God's image. That's true. That that should change the way you treat others. But, But not only does the Bible say that, that's the one thing that's true about every single human, man, woman, boy, and girl. But the second thing that the Bible clearly says about humanity... Is that we're all fallen image bearers, that we're sinful image bearers, that we have violated our terms of service. We've decided not to obey our Creator. So so we're image bearers, yes, but we're fallen, we're sinners. When, When God created humanity, His intention was that they would live under His righteous rule in perfect joy, worshiping Him, obeying Him, and thereby living in unbroken fellowship with Him. That's the plan. That was the plan. And that relationship between maker and people depended upon a trust that this holy, righteous, sovereign, good and kind God was actually good and kind and concerned for the best interests of his created people, that he would take care of his creation. This, this trust was the foundation and things went wrong when that trust was broken. And that trust was broken just three chapters into the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, the first, our first parents, the first created humans, Adam and Eve, they were given one command to follow. One command. They're created in in this garden with with plenteous trees and and sustenance. I mean, there's trees abundant. And the Lord says, there's one tree that you can't eat from. That's it. If you're hungry, all these trees, any of them, There's one you can't. That's one specific command to follow. Don't eat from this one specific tree. And that one command was too much. The one command. The first parents, he created me. He's instructed me. I have no reason not to doubt him, but I'd rather not listen to him. I don't trust him. I would rather be my own God and decide what I can and can't have around here. Thus, Adam and Eve decided to disobey God's command and transgressed the law that God had given them. And they, in so doing, rejected him as their rightful king. And all of creation, with Adam and Eve, fell. Fell into a state of sin and ruin. It was the fall from from their state of innocence, purity, purity. They fell, and after their sin, Adam and Eve, they're they're guilty, and death enters the world. Adam and Eve immediately they hide from God. They cover themselves because they're shameful. They're, they're, they're ashamed of what they've done. They know that they've disobeyed and that they deserve to be punished. They're afraid of God. They'd sinned against Him. And the result of their guilt and their death, things were no longer the way they were intended to be. Their fellowship with God was broken the very thing they were created for, the relationship that was to be the source of their life and joy and satisfaction, that very thing had been severed. And it was severed because they chose to rebel against their good, sovereign creator. And this is the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is that with them, we all fell. We all fell with them. Adam and Eve, as our our representatives, as our corporate heads... So that when they fell, the result was that everyone after them would be born into a different world, into a different position. We can't enter back to where they were because it fell and it all fell. One author says there's a crack that goes through everything because of what happened. And that new position is characterized by by a fallen, sinful nature in humans. Not only are we born guilty... But not long after we're born guilty, our sin nature is revealed. So we're born sinners, and then we sin as a result of who we are. It's not as though we're born innocent, and then once we sin, it's like, oh, there now you're guilty. No, 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 no. We are born guilty. Although the God of the universe, the good, kind, sovereign Lord created all things, God has created every man, woman, boy, and girl in his image, and though there's still value in every human being, the reality is that all human image bears, all fallen image bears, are not only born into a broken relationship with our Creator, we're born as sinners, we're also born into a state of rebellion and anarchy against the rightful sovereign King of the universe. We're born rebels. We can't minimize what the reality of the sinful nature is, the sinful state. We are at enmity with God from birth. Which means not only are we born with a broken relationship, we're actually born enemies of God. So it's not as though it's just broken. It's like, hey, we're just floating out here and God's over here and it's like, hey, I hope you come back. That's not it. We're at enmity. We're his enemies because we've rebelled against him. And we're born under his just Condemnation. We will be judged for our sin and rebellion. The sovereign creator and righteous judge will hold us accountable for our sin and rebellion. Our sins have made a separation between us and God so that we are at enmity with him. Our sins have hidden his face from us. We, we can't see him and know him because of the divide. We are all, as we saw last week, on the wide road to destruction And because of this state that we're born into, because of our sinful nature, because of our guilt before God, we are all naturally headed towards a judgment and eternal separation from God in a real, literal hell. The wages of sin is death. Eternal. And unless our sin and rebellion, unless our guilt is is dealt with, unless something is done, we have no hope for life or hope or restored relationship with our God and Creator. That's the state of things. That's our natural state as fallen image bearers. We are on the highway to hell. That is the bad news of the gospel. But that leads quickly to the third point under this message, which is that Christ, but, that's the state That's where we're headed. That's what we deserve. But the gospel is good news indeed because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, the last word is not human sin and guilt. God's judgment is not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be your final destination. Though we are all rightfully condemned on the road to destruction, God has acted in the person of Jesus Christ. This is all over the Bible. From from the Genesis 3 promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. To the king coming on the white horse to destroy his enemies. And everywhere in between, we see the salvation that's coming and has come through Jesus Christ. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't have to. The world is condemned already. Jesus doesn't condemn the world because the world is condemned already. Jesus comes to save the world. He's come in order that the world might be saved through him. So John's gospel tells us that the coming of Christ into the world is the, the dis- display or the means of God loving the world. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son. And this Son, this eternally begotten Son, this Christ, who was with God in the beginning, who is God, according to John 1.1. 1, 1. This Son, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This Son became a man, and he became a man to save his people. You, me. And he did so by by living the worthy life that we never lived, that Adam and Eve failed to live. Jesus did. In contrast to Adam and Eve, our corporate heads, Jesus never failed or rebelled or disobeyed or distrusted God, his Father, but lived a life of complete, perfect obedience. He was the truly righteous man, the true example of true and genuine humanity. If you want to know what a human life is supposed to look like, it is that. Jesus is that picture. He came and he lived on this earth. But the giving of the Son involves so much more than simply living a worthy life. If that were the case, his crucifixion could have come much earlier. But it didn't, because his life was, was for a purpose and it was leading somewhere. He came and he lived, but but his life ended. This son died. On the cross, as a criminal, the righteous one was condemned, the holy one was crucified. The innocent one was treated as though guilty. And this death was far more than a series of unfortunate events. The Romans, the Jews, didn't didn't catch God by surprise when they crucified the Son of God. That's not what happened. This death was the outworking of the definite and predestined plan of the triune God to save his people, a plan that was set in motion long before the world ever came into being. A plan to save God's people included the Son coming and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this Son, Jesus Christ, came. He lived the perfect life, but he died a death in our place as our substitute, He was treated as the guilty, the rebel, the sinner. He fulfilled the legal demands of the law that stood against us. They were set aside and nailed to the cross. The guilt and the transgression that were on our account, the debt that we owed to the righteous holy judge, was paid by a substitute, by another. And it it had to be that way. Because we could never pay the debt that we owed. We are not able to save ourselves. Jesus came because we can't save ourselves. He died in our place because we couldn't do it. This is the good news of the gospel. God did what we could not do. The Christian gospel is based clearly, boldly, insistently on how loving God is to the undeserving. You didn't deserve Christ coming and dying in your place. But the gospel proclaims, "Thus it has happened. While you are still a sinner, while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ lived and he died, a substitute, a payment for sins, satisfying the wrath of God that was, that was rightly pointed at us. Deservedly so, Christ has paid it. He has drunk the cup of God's wrath to the end. The last drop has been satisfied. Christ died, and then Christ rose. He rose. This is the gospel. He lived, he died, he rose. All of what I've said about the death of Christ is wonderful and true, but it's only so because Christ is no longer dead. It's true because he's he's been raised. The life and death of Jesus are significant because he has been raised. If he was not raised, nothing mattered that he did. But because he's been raised, everything matters. If Christ is still in the grave and had not been raised, I wouldn't be here talking about him. You wouldn't be here. Because everyone dies. Everyone dies. Death eventually wins against every human being that lives in this fallen world. We're all going to die. Jesus died, but death's victory over Christ was short lived. He didn't stay dead. When life entered again into the body of Christ, the, the new body, the resurrected body, when he walked out of the grave, everything that he claimed, everything he had promised, everything he had been sent to accomplish was accomplished was fully, finally, unquestionably, and irrevocably vindicated. He walks out of the grave and it's done. It's finished. Accepted, vindicated, validated. The cash has been checked. The check has been cashed. And so the gospel is the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We could go on on to the ascension and the sending of the Spirit, but, but this is where we will keep it. Life, death, resurrection. This is what God has done. This is the gospel. These are events that happened that have eternal consequence. One last thing to say about the gospel message is that while it's not exclusive, it doesn't exclude anyone from from benefiting on what Christ has done. So it's non-exclusive. It is not inclusive. In the sense that it, it doesn't automatically benefit everyone. Not everyone will be saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's what I mean. So the fact that he's done it doesn't mean, hey, the world's good. We're all going to heaven to be with him. That's not That's not what the gospel proclaims. It is not inclusive. A response is required. You must do something to get in on it. You must do something. Something is necessary for you to do to benefit from what Christ has done. Something is required for you to be saved. In fact, that question was asked Peter after he preached the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. They they hear the gospel. Peter explains it. He says, this Christ that you killed, this is what God was doing, Christ, God has made him Lord and Christ, and he explains, hey, you guys killed the Son of God, and they say, what must we do? They're convicted. They say, what do we have to do? And do you know what Peter says? He tells them what they have to do. The answer that Peter gives is the answer that the Bible gives. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do. So your doing isn't really doing, is it? is it? You, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is what saves you. It's what gets you in on the deal. It's what, what includes you in the benefits of the gospel. It's what unites you to Jesus. And you're united to him in a death like his, and a resurrection like his, and you have a new life because of your union with Christ, because of faith in him. And what is meant by faith, that's sometimes a a word that can seem vague, it's it's trust or reliance. You trust in Christ. You place all of your eggs in the basket of Christ. Your confidence is in Him and what He's done. You rely on Him. That's it. That's what you do to be be saved. And by believing in Christ, by faith in the Son of God, you're justified. You're declared righteous. Your sins are forgiven. You're given new life. You're given eternal life. You're reconciled to God. You're born again. And so many other things, all by way of, of faith in Jesus, you trust in Him. And in, in trusting in Christ, that's the positive side. In trusting in Him, the, 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 the other effect is you turn from sin. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. By trusting in Christ, you are turning from sin. That's why repentance is often referred to as a turning around, a a changing of your mind. You're you're in sin and you're pursuing sin and you trust in Christ and your back is to sin and you're pursuing Christ. You're trusting Him. And by putting your faith in Jesus, you are saved. You're born again. And when that happens, your sin doesn't disappear, your sin isn't completely removed. Your sin will be forgiven and no longer be a burden for you to bear, leading you on the path to destruction. Your forgiveness comes through faith in Christ. Your your faith comes from the fact that his death was in your place, and that death happened at a specific time and place. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, your sin was paid for at Calvary. You're not going to get extra sin to to hop off the cross and, and come threaten you or weigh you down. Your sin, if your faith is in Jesus, was paid once and for all. We're free from sin. We no longer live in it. Yes, we still fight and struggle against it, but our relationship to it has been severed. We're on a different team altogether. We're, we're on a different side. We're, we're going a different direction. Our lives are that of continual faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. That's we're pursuing new life. That's the response that's called for. God, man, Christ response. This is the gospel. This is the message. It's simple. It's clear. It just leaves us with a few points of application. First point of application this is a message to be proclaimed. In light of the good news of the gospel, in light of all that it entails, the gospel is a message that demands to be proclaimed, it's to be heralded. In fact, as I I was thinking through this, the, the words of Steve Green came to me. How many of you guys listen to Steve Green? Do you remember that name? He's like CCM before there's CCM. But, but there's a song where he talks about across the street or around the world, the mission's still the same, to proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. A great song. I listened to it on YouTube this morning. But the point is, no matter where you go, across the street or around the world, the me- mission is to proclaim this gospel. In fact, if you look up the noun, gospel, and all of its occurrences in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I counted eight of them, the noun, and every single occurrence of of that noun was in the context of a, a proclaim. This gospel must be proclaimed. Or Jesus went throughout the cities and villages proclaiming the gospel. Or go into all the world and proclaim this gospel. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed. It's a declaration of what God has done. That's what the gospel is. This is what has happened. This is the good news. So in this sense, your main goal, my main goal in relationship to the gospel is not to defend it or even to try and explain it. Those are helpful and sometimes necessary, but the primary thing we do is to proclaim it. This is what God has done. Do you want in on this? The gospel can defend itself. The gospel will do its work. God will work through the proclamation of the gospel. It's because the gospel is no ordinary message. It's to be proclaimed because the second point of application. It's not only a message to be proclaimed, but it's a message with power. It's not, hey, the the Washington football team won the Super Bowl. That'd be great news, but that that really that's not. There's nothing lasting to that. There's think of think of the best news you could you could think of here on this earth. There, there's lots of messages of good news. This message is different because this message has power. The gospel, the Apostle Paul says, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to proclaim it because it's, it's the power to, to anyone who believes. They're saved. It's the gospel that saves. It's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is where the power is from. The gospel is how God saves people. And it's a message of folly, it's a message of foolishness, but it's a message of salvation to everyone who believes. I mean, do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 2 when Peter finishes the Pentecost sermon? When they heard this, before they say, hey, what do we have to do? Do you, do you remember what, what is recorded? They were cut to the heart. Do you know what that is? That's a powerful gospel. That's a powerful gospel that cuts the heart and says, I, I'm ruined. I have to do something. I'm guilty. The gospel has power. Power. The same thing is assumed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, For brothers, we know, loved by God, that God has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says, hey, we preach the words, but we know you're chosen. We know you belong to the Lord because of its effect among you. It was powerful. It it changed you. It converted you. The gospel did the work. And so Paul says, "I'm." we know that God's chosen you because of how the gospel worked among you. When the gospel is proclaimed, it comes in power and people are saved. God uses the gospel proclaimed to save people. The message of the gospel is what God has ordained to save men and women, boys and girls. We can't argue anyone unto salvation. We can't convince anyone to be saved. We can't save anyone. Our words can't be good enough. I mean, Jesus was the perfect preacher, and he lost one. And many more heard him and said, no, thank you. So we can't do it. We're not better preachers or proclaimers than Jesus. We proclaim what God has done and trust God to save people, knowing that the message is the means of salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I mean, think about your story of conversion. If you're a Christian here, think back. Think back. How did God save you? My guess is is he used a person, a person. Maybe it was a friend, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, maybe maybe it was just the Bible, maybe you're just in your room reading. A radio preacher, a TV evangelist. However God saved you, he did so using someone or something to proclaim the gospel to you. You heard the gospel, maybe maybe the 100th time, maybe the first time. But you heard the gospel through a means and you are saved. That is how people are saved. The power isn't in the person or the means, the power's in the gospel. And so we proclaim the powerful gospel. We'll say more about this in the coming weeks, but just so you, you know, I know, the gospel when proclaimed doesn't always lead to salvation. Sometimes it leads to rejection, to hard-hearted rebellion. Sometimes it takes weeks or months or years for someone to respond to the gospel with faith, if ever at all. Sometimes people live and die hearing the gospel and never believing it. But the result isn't on us. We herald the news. We proclaim the good news. We tell what God has done in his son. Because although not everyone who hears the gospel is saved, everyone who's saved is saved through hearing and believing the gospel. Because although not everyone who hears the gospel is saved, everyone who is saved is saved through hearing and believing the gospel. Which leads to the last point, which is simply this. The gospel is a message to be believed. The gospel is a message of what God's done in sending his son to save the world. It must be believed. Our faith must be in Christ. But a relationship to Christ and the gospel, it's not a one-time thing. We don't put our faith in Christ and then turn around and leave him. That's not believing the gospel. The gospel is believed. When we turn to Christ in faith, we believe we're transformed. We're set on a new path. We're given new life. Our desires, our priorities, they're transformed. We're a different person. And this gospel, the salvation that comes to us through faith in Christ, is something that, that we hold fast to continually. We continuously believe that Jesus died and was buried and was raised for our salvation. We hold firmly to this message until the end. We receive it, we stand firm in it, we hold fast to it from start to finish. In fact, one of the church fathers said that the gospel is simple enough for a toddler to wade into, but deep enough for the elephant to swim in. We don't move past the gospel. We don't graduate to the big pool, right? The kiddie pool and the big pool, it's all in one. And we live in the gospel from start to finish. We live our lives in light of the gospel. The gospel changes us, and we live gospel-shaped lives, lives marked by love for Christ, a right relationship with God, a life of holiness and obedience, love for others, a life of firm hope and peace, a life of humility, Right? These are all ways that the gospel shapes our lives. And, and our goal is, is to, to establish this is the gospel that saves and this is the gospel that shapes our lives. So that's what we're going to do the, the rest of the summer. And, and Lord willing, next week we'll look at how the gospel is a message of great joy. If you have received Jesus, there's reason for joy. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. Let me pray for us and then then we're going to respond in song.